Welcome to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host, and I'm joined by my guest today, Victor Uruewa. Victor, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, Those of you who attended Civic Design 21 uh, back in December of 21 might have heard uh, Victor give a a really, really well-appreciated presentation. uh, He's also going to be presenting a similar talk entitled Radical Participatory Research, Decolonizing Participatory Processes at the upcoming Advancing Research Conference, March 9th through 11th. His talk is on March 9th. That conference is going to be fully virtual. Like it or not, it is where we are, but we are really glad to have you uh, presenting. Uh, Let me do the honor of a brief intro for you, Victor. You are... Here we go. It's, it's a mouthful. You describe yourself as a community member, a community designer, and a chief experience officer and service design lead at the SBIR slash STTR at NASA. NASA. So uh, you're in the public sector. Ergo, there are acronyms. What's SBIR, STTR? Small Business Innovation Research Program and Small Business Technology Transfer Program. Excellent. So um, I want to hear how you connect those things to participatory research, which is a topic we're going to dig into pretty deeply during today's podcast. Uh, But first, when I was looking over your bio, I was like, wow. I mean, you know, I knew about the last few years and some of the things you'd been doing. And then I dug a little deeper back in time and biographical forensics uh, unveiled um, uh, that you had been an instructional designer, which is like, it's got to be the the, um, job title of the 21st century. If there was, we need more. Uh, And then I dug even further back uh, and I saw actor and I saw that you even worked as a project manager uh, on some architectural projects, actual architecture, not uh, information architecture like some of us uh, are all hepped up about. Um, so uh, I'd like to know how you took that journey and, and how it got you up to talking about participatory uh, design and research at, at uh, highfalutin conferences like Civic Design and Advancing Research. <laughs> all this highfalutin stuff, yeah. Great question. I am lucky enough to be inside a community of people that do both right brain dominant activities and left brain dominant activities. So for instance, my best friend is a biostatistician, so a professor. And he's also a very accomplished jazz pianist. And he he holds both of those intention and I was nurtured by that community, encouraged by that community. So I've always tried to keep up some of those loves that I do. And I see connections between them. Some of those creative loves that I do, like uh, visual art, uh, theater, music, <clears throat> uh, dance and choreography, those types of things. I, I went from an early age, I, I went to all of my schools, elementary, middle school, and high school were schools that had magnet programs in the performing and visual arts. And so those are things that I've always connected to. And so when I first went to school, to college, university, I always saw engineering as 
the, the creative applied sciences. Like I'm trying to be creative as I figure out a way to solve an issue or a problem that is faster or more convenient or more safe, et cetera, et cetera. So I always, always viewed it, at least from my perspective, as something that had both a creative element, but also a more methodical scientific element like coming together. So I, I've thoroughly enjoyed that process and I'm just an explorer. I've always tried to be aware of all the opportunities out there. And sometimes I just take one step in a slightly different direction and that step then opens me up to other opportunities and I can take another step in a slightly different direction. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, I'm on a completely different path. And I'll, I'll specifically speak about one of the things you mentioned. The, the part I loved about instructional design was that I had a very lucky role in which people would come to me without assuming some form of the solution. They would say, hey, I have this problem. I think it's amenable to a learning design solution, some type of um, instructional design. Could you take a look at it and see, see what we could do? And I think normally most of my friends in that field, they're normally told something like this, hey, I need an e-learning course. Can you can you design it? And so they they are an e-learning course designer and they are an instructional designer. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes I'll use the word learning design to just imply that I was able to not only do research to figure out what are the learning gaps or skills gaps or what are all the skills or knowledge people need to do a particular task, but my job was also to figure out what was the best shape, format, method of delivery of that educational experience. And so if it was a video, I was doing video design. If it was technology, I was doing UX design. If it was a game, game design, uh, immersive experience, experience design. Uh, if it was a guide, you know, you're doing content, written content design. Um, it was so broad. And so I was able really to explore a lot of different fields just from that kind of learning design perspective. And I really, really, really enjoyed that and was lucky to be given that that space um, to find what was best for the particular needs of the learners. And you were doing that uh, uh, primarily when you were at Google. And I think uh, yeah. you were doing that with uh, uh, an audience on the subcontinent. Yeah, I was doing that with Google. I, I, I mean, I did instructional design before that, but that was the first time I was doing instructional design inside of a technology company, especially a multinational technology company. And yeah, I, I focused on low to middle income countries around the world. Oh, and then take it forward. So uh, from there to, uh, to NASA. Well, it's, it relates a little bit to the work at Google and some people at Google will probably be upset with me if I say this, but it, it appeared, I could be wrong, but it appeared that I was the only, or at least one of the only, if not the only learning designer who was approaching learning design in almost exactly the same way you would approach UX design. Hmm. So I really was just taking a human-centered design approach. Now, I would say that modern educational design philosophies and methodologies are somewhat human-centered, but they're not exactly aligned. There are some ways that they could be made more. So you could say what I was doing was really progressive, but I was doing pretty much exactly the same thing. And especially it was because I had a strong understanding that I did not know the cultures for whom I was designing for. Sometimes when you know the culture, you you falsely assume that you know what they need and, and forget about the diversity that lies within a culture. So 
in in doing the learning design and especially because it was broad i was doing ux design sometimes and, and video design and game design and content design and i was based in london i was moving back to the us and i wasn't allowed to keep my job mm-hmm. uh, and and do it from the us so i was looking for an opportunity and i was able to transition to 18f got a job there which is a government digital consultancy inside the government, but for the federal government. And we help people solve problems really focused on employees, but also citizens, immigrants, and refugees. So before we leave instructional design, you, you frame it or use a different framing of learning design. Is that because the, the framing or the, the, the term instructional design might be too instructor centric and not enough learner centric? Is it that simple or... I mean, it's been around for a while, obviously. Instructional design is not uh, is much older than UX design. And I wonder if it's yeah. like one of those framings that's just become so tarnished and, you know, maybe it's ready to, maybe people are ready to move on from it. Yeah, yeah, it it is. So that's one of the reasons that it is very instructor-centric. And, and there are student-centered or learner-centered models. I, I'll, I'll often translate human-centered design and say learner-centered design or student-centered design, um, which from a participatory perspective means that I involve or try to work with or alongside students and learners in designing their own experiences, or at least they should be the ones leading the way in terms of what it should look like and helping to develop that. So yeah, it is. it can be very instructor-centered and it you kind of highlight the tension between teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. Can you teach if there's no learning uh, is learning a necessary component? Is is teaching the, the focus or is learning the focus, et cetera? So yeah, I, I try to say learning design to focus on the learning and to to leave amorphous whatever role the teacher or facilitator might have in this type of experience. So when you made the transition from Google to 18F, from private sector to public sector, did did that framing help you? Was there was that why you were drawn toward the public sector? Was there, was it more welcoming to that framing or to some other type of work that you wanted to do in general? Yeah, well, I, I should say the, the public sector is so big that it depends on where you go and where you land. So 18F specifically, yes, it had, I would say at least half of the people were from private sector companies that were used to, you know, agile philosophies and cultures and human-centered design, et cetera. So yes, they were welcoming to me specifically um, because I was coming from a tech company that had some of those philosophies and cultures and had, had was thinking in more innovative ways. Um, the public sector component though had some fami- familiarity to me because I, in doing my work at Google, was connecting and working alongside governments around the world. So I would work with ministries of education who were trying to improve teaching and learning in their schools, their elementary schools and middle schools and high schools, et cetera. So they were often partners in the work that we were doing to help bring the next billion online. And so this was an extension of that, but now being more embedded and working more closely. It's interesting. I mean, I guess there's actually uh, quite a lot in common between uh, national governments and Google as an institution. I mean, it is larger probably than most national governments and has a, uh, you know, arguably the world's citizenry is their customer base. Interesting. So, so then, uh, and then you moved on from there to NASA. So let's get into, uh, 
participatory uh, design and and you know I'm really interested like that's NASA and small specifically in connecting to small business it's not what I where I would have expected people to be doing participatory design work and uh, yeah yeah can you demystify it for me yeah it you know it's really difficult to do that type of work in the federal government because there are large parts of the federal government. My guess is most of the federal government. I could be wrong, but large parts of the federal government do not interact directly with citizens. They'll send money or funds to states, to nonprofits and foundations and things like that. And so I am lucky to be in a part of the federal government and specifically a part of NASA that actually directly interacts with people. And so in my program, we focus specifically on trying, we have an economic development lens. So we're specifically trying to develop the economy, mm-hmm. but specifically small businesses. Hmm. And then we have a racial and gender equity lens to it. We, we want to include, in, increase the representation of uh, women owned, minority owned, veteran owned and service disabled veteran owned small businesses. Um, most of, by dollar amount, most of the government contractors are huge, they're large. Right. And so this is really focused on including and diversifying the organizations that work with the government. And so this is a this is all created a law by the Small Business Administration with Congress. They said if you're a government agency and you have over one hundred million dollars in research and development budget, you must set aside a certain percentage for small businesses. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, you have an even if you surpass an even higher minimum threshold of a billion dollars in research and development, you have to set aside an additional percentage for collaborations between small businesses and research institutions. And that's the small business technology transfer component. So with that, uh, most of those research institutions are universities, and we have a particular focus on women's colleges, um, Hispanic serving institutions, HSIs, Mm -hmm. HBCUs, uh, historically black colleges and universities, tribal colleges and universities, TCUs, uh, Native American non-tribal universities, Alaska Native, Hawaii Native universities, um, Asian American institutions. So all of that, we're trying to bring more of those institutions uh, into the work that NASA does and, and participating with us. Okay. So um, so let's talk about the role of participatory design. Um, and actually... Um, Let's do that after the break, because I want to really dig in. But this is a good moment to take a quick pause. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to 
an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when these scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. Uh, I'm Lou Rosenfeld with my guest, Victor Duewa. And uh, we are just about to dive into participatory design. And, um, you know, this is a topic that, you know, you're going to be talking about at Advancing Research. You talked about it at, at Civic Design back in December. But it's also a topic that I think a lot of people, certainly in the UX world, like they've heard of, they may know a little bit about, um, and maybe wish they knew more. And wish they, that, like, I, I will confess to, to being one of those people. And I've heard a lot of passionate defenses of it and uh, passionate critiques of it. And um, I, I wonder if you can do a little level setting so uh, you know people can get beyond a surface level understanding before we dig into what you're going to be covering specifically at Advancing Research. Yeah, the first thing to know is that there are many ways to describe it, right? So we say participatory design but you might hear it referred to as collaborative design or co-design, et cetera. There, there are tons of different ways to look at it. On the research side, you might hear participatory action research, um, collaborative research, emancipatory research. The main idea with participatory design is that we involve some of the stakeholders in the process of design. Now, when some people say participatory design, they mean all stakeholders. So yes, the users, but maybe executives in your organization, right? Uh, when others mean it, their focus is specifically on the, the end users who are using it and involving them since they're the ones who are going to be using it. And that's usually what I mean. That's the focus on, on, um, from a power perspective. Mm -hmm. The executives have power, the users don't. Now, the reasons people do it are, are different, right? So. Some people want to do participatory design because it offers an opportunity for mutual learning. And I'm glad that they say mutual because it's not learning just on one side. So the, the participants might learn a little bit about your research and design methods. You as a professional researcher and designer will learn a little bit about the participants' experience, their, their um, experiential knowledge, and the things that they bring, the expertise they bring from their lives. Some people do it just to get input, right? I want to make sure that the input from the users affects and is and comes into the design process. Um, some people do it because they want their perspectives, which you could think of it as different because input could be all a, a, a huge amount of input, a little amount of input. But um, if you want their perspectives to be represented to to influence the design, some people do it beyond input and perspective and beyond mutual learning to actually improve the design outcome. And their belief is that if we involve the users, 
because they're the ones who are experiencing the situation, the outcome will be better because their lived experience helped guide the process. Mm-hmm. And then some people do it apart from the design outcome and mutual learning and input and perspective, specifically because they think it is the fair or right thing to do, the just thing to do because of the power imbalance and shouldn't people have some agency in designs that affect them and affect their lives. Uh, and remember, some of the designs that we do are literally life and death designs, right? Think of things like roller coasters or uh, buses, et cetera. So some people do it from a justice perspective. So there are many different reasons people do it. And then the last component is partly because of the many different reasons, there are many different levels of participation, right? So some people, when they say participatory design, they mean a, a particular a particular method, right? On the mm-hmm. research side, it might be some type of, I hate to use jargon, but auto ethnographic method. So uh, the people who are gonna use whatever you're creating, designing might be both um, the researchers and the research participants. So maybe they take pictures of themselves or have fo- uh, uh, a video camcorder or they do some journaling, like diary studies, et cetera. So they are actually creating the research, even though it's also about them. On the design side, it might just be a particular method um, like a collaborative design studio, right? So you bring in the users and you're doing something together. Or it might be journey mapping that you do with users, et cetera. So it, it might be a specific method. And for some people, it's a way of doing a method. So I can do a method mm-hmm. just with the professional designers, or maybe I can do the same exact method, but just have the uh, participants, the users come in, right? Like I just mentioned with the design studio. And then for some people, it's a methodology. So they, they get a collection of methods or maybe just guiding philosophies that help them choose methods. And they put it in a, in a toolkit of all these things that you do when you have the users in the room, but they're not always in the room. Right. Right. And so, the entire reason why I even added the adjective of radical in front of participatory design is because I would go to conferences or talk with people who were doing participatory design and was so excited and then had a little bit of disappointment when I realized they meant something different than I meant. And I just didn't see very many people doing what I was doing. So I was kind of confused. And so what I did is I added an adjective just to distinguish that I kind of mean something different um, when I say participatory design. But anyway, that's that's a brief introduction. That's I didn't talk about the history. Fantastic of, of level set. Thank you. I mean, you've like demystified yeah. it in, in so many ways so clearly. So thank you for that. So so get into the radical part. Yeah. So I guess when I say r- radical, I don't mean extreme, right? That's kind of the common way that we use it. I, when I say radical, I'm pulling from the Latin radix, which just means root. So when I say radical, I mean all the way down from top to bottom, all the way through the users are participating. So normally in the, in the ways that I just talked about with the method or way of doing the method, or even some of the methodology, the methodology will tell you, okay, at this point you call them and you bring them in, but you do all this other stuff beforehand. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I say radical, it just means that the team, the research team, the design team is composed of users. Mm-hmm. They are full-fledged members. 
all the way through from the beginning of the process to the end. Nothing happens, no phone calls, no meetings apart from them because they are members of the team. And that's that's kind of what I mean by radical. So what, at some point you're drawing, I imagine, like minimal boundaries around that process or about around who's at the table in terms of those users. You may not know what that community wants and that may be the goal, but you still have to say, well, the community is X and we are going to get a subset of X and we have to, you know, we, it's got to be an ask to them too. It's got to be scoped in a way that they understand and want to participate in. And how, that sounds like that must be a really tricky thing in terms of just getting started. Yeah, it is. It is tricky. And, and this is where critique can come, come into the process. Like, oh, I don't know about this radical thing because I don't, you, you might even have, you know, issues with bias on your team and you're right. You definitely can. However, I'd rather have the bias that comes with having users on my team than the bias that comes with having no users on my team. Mm -hmm. So the, the only thing we do before we might have community members present or users present on the research team as full-fledged members is just figure out who we need to invite. But we don't start framing anything. We don't start, we just know there might be an issue or problem that we want to address, but let's bring them in and then we figure out how to address it. So yes, we look at the community. We try to figure out um, what I would call a qualitatively representative sample of the community. But due to our ignorance, we can be wrong, mm -hmm. which is fine because once the community is there, they're, they're then able to say, hey, we're missing this perspective or, or this person and they can help correct that. Um, so it's just getting started. And then once you have them on, on the team, they can help you fully flesh out the rest of that. So yes, um, uh, the only thing we're doing is trying to scope uh, the different qualities within the community, categories and qualities within the community that might affect the design so that we have a representative group. But the scoping of the project comes once they are on board. And the community scope is, I guess, dependent on the remit of the organization. So you're working in with small business and, uh, you know, technology transfer in the ways you described it earlier. So that already scopes the community to some degree. Correct. Right. Okay. Scopes the community to some degree. And then in some cases, you know, you know, when I was at Google, for instance, and I did this, you know, one, one of the ways you're able to do this when there's a lot of resistance is um, picking a project or working on a project that people no longer care about. So then the scoping from that perspective is released now to the community the the organization has given up power and said okay victor take it away see what the community wants and and, and we'll see if it, you know if we can if we can get behind that um but yes my focus when i was at google was digital literacy so there was some scope to what we were doing in terms of that but how, what it would look like at what level came from the community do you find that there are certain situations uh where um it's going to be more successful uh, uh, an approach to take than others. Like, I'm just wondering, you know, let's say in the United States, all the frustration over postal service, you know, the USPS has, you know, been famously challenged and, and uh, uh, for better, or for worse, that's, that's something on a lot of people's minds. How would this participatory approach, a radical participatory approach work or should it work? with the context of people uh, uh, helping redesign services from the USPS? 
Well, the first thing to know is that we would want to have people who both receive the services, but also the employees who help run and administer the services. Mm -hmm. So we, we pull from both sides. So at NASA, right now I'm doing participatory research. We have it on the internal side. We're trying to do it on the external side. Of course, it requires approvals, but we recently were approved for the external. Um, but we have a bunch of employees who are working to improve their experience as well as the customer experience. And we have customers that are going to be coming in to do that as well. So we would we would want to do it on both sides of that. Um, same exercise, like they're in the same room at the same time, employees and customers. Okay. Yeah, for re, for for redesigning the service. Imagine if you if you had a project that you were scoping, you you scoped the project so that you wanted to redesign or refine, let me say, a service to improve the employee experience alone. Then yes, we would only have the employees in. Um, Got it. But if and, and so this is this is that differentiation sometimes between when you say product design and service design. That with service design, we actually are also looking at the employee experience. So it's my it's my remit to to work on both sides of that and, and improve both because an improved employee employee experience can improve the customer experience. And then what people often don't say is that an improved customer experience can also improve the employee experience. Mm -hmm. You know, think of like people who want to apply to become an employee at a company like Apple or something like that, or employees who feel a certain pride because of the way the customers love what they do. It's interesting because I could see uh, that other big constituency of stakeholders being uncomfortable with all this. Yeah. So I have a, I have a paper that I, I wrote and I'm hoping it'll, it'll get published this year. It's a, it's an academic paper. So I still do some of that. And there's whole issues with academic publishing. We can talk about that. But in that paper, I do talk a little bit more about how do you deal with some of these roadblocks. So yes, um, a lot of stakeholders are not as comfortable because what it requires, honestly, is to give up power. And I've had a lot, of, I, I've had failures. I hate to talk about like things that work. I've had failures where you go through it and it's a radical process. You're doing radical participatory design. Then you've, you've come up with designs and right at the last moment, now that you have these designs, the organization takes back power and says, you know what? I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's too radical for us. That's, that's too much. We don't want to go in that direction. And so the, the agency you thought you had, you never really had. It was just kind of like, okay, we'll let you do this, but really it's our decision and we may not want to do it. Whereas I've been in other situations where it's fully relinquished and we're going to support what the community comes up with. So, you know, one way, one way we deal with that is to actually have the other stakeholders involved. And when you're involved in the process, you're less likely to, to change your mind at the end because you were you were there and contributing to the decision making and the interpretation and the evaluation and the sense making. Um, another process that we use is before we do participatory design with customers or users, we first start participatory design with employees because organizations are often more willing to test it out with employees. And when they can see results and see how it works, then they say, okay, I think I understand. And I, this worked out really well. Let's, okay, let's try it on, on, on this project, not on that bigger one, but let's try this, this one. So you do it in steps. And as you show good results, they're more willing to take a further step and a further step. So sometimes we start internally before going externally, but I have a whole bunch of tips. Well, I'm sure you'll get into some of those in, uh, in your presentation, which is going to be mostly geared toward researchers, given that you're, you're giving it at advancing research. Are there specific things that um, uh, 
pertain only to researchers or, or points that you think they should know whether they can make uh, your talk at the conference or not? Yeah, you know, and sometimes, you know, the conference talks are so short, so you don't get to say everything. So I'm, I'm really thankful I have this opportunity. The idea here is that I think the confusion over participatory design, participatory research being somewhat new or, or arising in the 70s or the 60s or the 40s is because of the rise of the professional designer and the rise of the professional researcher. But if we, we begin to break down well, what actually is design and what actually is research, rather than something like the, the ethos of human-centered design being a democratizing force, we realize that design and research are things people have always done that have been embedded in other types of work. You have to research in order to do something else. You, mm -hmm. have, you have to experiment and design in order to you know, build a house as a, as a stonemason, et cetera, et cetera. So, so these things have always been a part of other roles and now that we have this role that is only, the only thing I do is I'm a researcher, I'm a professional at that, or I'm, I'm not even a, a, a specific designer, I'm just a professional in design methodologies. And the rise of this has created this confusion, but these, these things are, are ancient, they've been around. And so whenever you have communities that just deal with issues and they have questions they're trying to answer and they solve problems, they're engaging in this process without necessarily hiring an, an external person from the outside uh, to come in and do this. And so for the researchers, one of the things that I try to remind people of is that there are different types of knowledge. So there's lived experiential knowledge, there's cultural and spiritual knowledge. And then the, what we tend to think of as knowledge is the mainstream institutional knowledge, which in, in a white supremacist culture or a Western dominant culture, we, we preference and prefer and you know lionize the written word over other ways of knowing and other ways of being. But there is a lot of knowledge that is not written down, right? And so part of what we realize is that, oh, research then can begin to change from investigation to establish a fact or reach a conclusion to all these other things that research could be. So for instance, research, instead of being an investigation to answer questions, question, research could be the passing of information through a socio-human system, right? The propagation of, of information through a system. And in fact, one of the things I often say is that when you have a healthy system, right? The need for formal research in the way that we think of it decreases, mm -hmm. right? So a good way to think about it, let me, let me see if I can give you a quick analogy. Um, for, so economics is the study of the allocation of resources. So if you think about the allocation of financial or, or uh, financial capital resources, um, we have this term that we call poverty, right? It means you don't have money. But in reality, let me ask you this question. If you, if you lost your job, your home, and all your money and your food, how long would it take you to get a bite to eat? How long would it take you to find a place to sleep? How long would it take you to get another job? Now, a lot of the people that I interact with um, who are professionals and a certain level uh, of socioeconomic class in the United States will say, well, I, I think I could find some food in a few hours. I think I could find a place to sleep by, by the end of that day, by, by nighttime. And I probably could find a job in X number of months, right? 
And I say, well, why, why is that? What, what allows you to do that? And then people realize, well, it's because I know people. I have relationships. Knowledge. Oh, yeah. So then I often say poverty isn't the lack of money. Poverty is a lack of relationships through which money flows, mm-hmm. right? And the relationships, the connections help me when I'm suffering. I have friends. I have family that can give me a place to sleep and give me some money for some food that I can reach out to for connections. So in the same way, if I, if I change it from the financial uh, economy to the knowledge economy, then poverty of knowledge or ignorance isn't necessarily a lack of knowing, but it's a lack of relationships through which knowledge flows. And so sometimes I think our, our systems and the connections that we have to the people or with people and the users and the customers are so poor that we have to do this formal work. Um, when when they're really healthy, that knowledge is always constantly flowing back and forth when we're in good and right relationship with the people that we're trying to serve. So a lot of my work is trying to reestablish that and recognize that um, and, and bring those to the forefront. I love that. And I, I love that, you know, basically what that means is a radical participatory researcher has a very different kind of role than in traditional, quote, traditional research in terms of uh, you know, research is pulling information together. It's, it's, a, it's, it's in a way, you know, filling up those coffers. And uh, in, I guess in radical participatory research, you're, you're not filling the coffers as much as connecting the people in that knowledge economy so that those connections are closer together. The, the, the knowledge is not so uh, widely distributed in a way that people can't get at it when they need to. I love it. Um, yeah. And I love this discussion. I wish we could go on. We are coming up against our time limits. We, we did go a little longer than uh, I thought we might, but um, I'm just, this has just been a fantastic discussion, and I really appreciate it, Victor. I do want to give you uh, a, a quick moment to uh, observe the Rosenfeld Review tradition of tagging someone or something, some piece of information, could be a podcast, a book, a person that you feel the, our listeners should know about that could use a little more uh, sunlight, a little more attention. Yeah, there's a book. Yeah, there's a book called Design Justice. So I just want to call it out by Sasha Costanza Chalk. It's an excellent book and talks about a lot of these community led practices with a bias towards justice. Sasha also has an online version for those who are unable to financially purchase the book. And Sasha's on the board of the design justice network so there's a whole network and we have nodes think of it as chapters Mm -hmm. in different cities around the world where people are trying to learn about this and hopefully practice it in their daily lives and work fantastic well victor uh it's been just an absolute joy to to have you join us uh victor uduewa sorry about that uh from uh nasa where he's a Chief Experience Officer and Service Design Lead at their SBIR and STTR, Work with Small Business and Technology Transfer. Victor, thanks again for joining us. We'll see you at Advancing Research real soon, like a month. Looking forward to it. All right. right, Take take care. care. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at RosenfeldReview.com.